Hi, I'm Michael Sunoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable MP3 audio business interviews. I knew I needed a site that contained strategies, solutions, and inside angles to help you live better, to save and make more money, to stay healthier, and to get more out of life. I've learned a lot in the last five years, and today I'm going to show you the skills you need to survive. I started to put my note out that I was looking for companies to acquire through a bio program. And my buyout program was basically going to be buying them out using the HMA system as the revenue tool to get it. And in some instances, it made sense to just put cash down. You know, I have access to resources that allow me to do that and just buy the company. But in a lot of instances, we've been able to buy into businesses and take over a big portion of the business in a relatively short period of time in exchange for the results. So instead of being contingency-based, we did a profit base, and that revenue, as it came back in, would go towards equity into the company based on a fixed arrangement that was done previous to the acquisition. Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's Hard to Find Seminars.com. Here's a fascinating interview that marries both the Art Hamill business buying system and the HMA hidden marketing assets consulting system to create a dynamic and powerful way to acquire businesses. The title of this interview is called How to Use Your HMA Practice Like a Bank and Buy Companies Without Using Cash. Now, even though Chris was having no problems finding clients and making thousands of dollars per HMA project, it wasn't nearly the kind of money he wanted from his consulting practice. So he decided to get a little creative. Now, when Chris finds a company that can significantly and quickly benefit from the HMA marketing consulting system, he's no longer looking to get fees from them. He's looking to acquire the company itself. It all started when Chris noticed a trend in the business community. He started seeing more and more baby Boomer owners looking to hand off their businesses and retire without losing their shirts. Chris also noticed these business owners were very realistic about their options in today's economy and were more than open to less than traditional buyout offers. That's where the HMA system comes in. Chris uses only the revenue generated by his HMA steps to buy out companies. He simply makes a deal with the business owner that any money generated in excess of their current operating margins goes towards the acquisition of their company. And in this audio, you'll hear all the details of this unusual buyout and how you can easily start making them too. You'll also hear exactly how Chris buys out a company from scratch to finish, including where he finds the businesses and how he closes his deals. You'll learn what criteria Chris looks for in potential companies and how he analyzes and tests them before he jumps in. You'll learn why you want to assemble a team for your buyouts and how to do it effectively and efficiently. 
You'll learn what risk you can expect and ways to mitigate them. You'll learn how to tell business owners that you'd like to acquire their company using untraditional methods and how to negotiate those deals. You'll learn all about the out clauses involved in a sale and how to make sure you're never working for nothing. You'll learn who pays to put the money into the company to get the HMA steps going and what happens if there are silent shareholders or the business has a lien. Chris's methods essentially joins the HMA system with the Art Hamill business buying system, creating a powerful combination that allows you to have access to hundreds of thousands of dollars in a company's profits without needing to put any cash down to do it. The potential here is limitless, and now is a perfect time to get started. With more and more businesses experiencing cash flow problems while their baby boomer owners are looking to get out. So even if you're not sure buying out a business is right for you, you may want to give this hour-long audio a listen. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Michael Senoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable MP3 audio business interviews. I knew I needed a site that contained strategies, solutions, and inside angles to help you live better, to save and make more money, to stay healthier, and to get more out of life. I've learned a lot in the last five years, and today I'm going to show you the skills you need to survive. So, Chris, you've been buying businesses, and you're looking at businesses with underperforming assets, and because you're an HMA consultant and because you're pretty knowledgeable about marketing, you're being able to identify these assets, you're being able to hopefully buy the business at the right price, turn around and make some money. Is that about sum it up? Yeah, actually, I think you and I got in touch two and a half years ago, something like that, Right. and I took on the program, and by nature, I've been a reasonably good salesperson, so it wasn't hard to go and find people and start getting some consulting gigs, but I quickly got frustrated personally with the program in the sense that the revenues just weren't big enough. You'd have to take on way too many clients, and as soon as I started doing that, I realized that I had no leverage, so I'd have a whole bunch of clients, but no leverage. So getting clients using the system worked for you? It works, yeah, it works. I mean, I think it's pretty laid out, and the reason why I like this program much better than all the other stuff that I bought in the past was that there's actually a checklist to do, and I'm pretty good at following instructions. So it wasn't difficult. You know, you market yourself, you put your sign out, you talk to people. I created a fairly simple website, and I put up ads and those kind of things and referrals and talked to the chamber and whatever, you know, the suggestions that are out there. And it wasn't too hard to actually find customers. Of course, the market was pretty hot then. Not now, and I don't know what it would be like to go and sell those services today. Yeah, what was the most clients you had at one time? We got up to 12. And so what challenges became apparent with 12 clients? That I couldn't scale. And quite quickly, if you're going to get to that level, you need to build a business. You have to have other consultants working for you. You have to have very good project management capabilities to be able to manage the different deliverables. And I realized quite quickly that I was doing a disservice, I think, overall to the clients versus actually providing the value. Can I ask you what kind of fees you were charging for project work? Did it range? The minimum was $3,000 a month. 
I was charging, and typically a project would last minimum 90 days. So 7,000 was the highest that was consistent, because I did one-off projects for 10 grand or whatever, but they weren't long-term projects. So like if you sold a USP project, instead of selling it just to complete the USP for 3,000, you would do it on a time basis? I mean, could creating a USP take two months where you could get two payments for a USP? I didn't structure the sale of the program more so as the way to actually create some measurable deliverables. What I would do is I'd go into the client and I'd look at the business and I'd say, okay, well, here's the things that you're missing. And I'd basically go through the nine different avenues of things that we could do for customers. And based on those kind of things, we'd create a plan of, you know, here's how we're going to do things over a period of time and here's the fees to do it and then here's the deliverables that we can expect, here's the kind of impact we can expect and here's your responsibility here's my responsibilities and let's go and do it and the early customers that I had because I was so determined to make it work you know you don't realize it at first but to be successful with any program it's all about implementation customers don't implement if they could implement they would never need our services because they could do very simple things like sending a weekly email out or developing a USB it doesn't really require rocket science to do there's enough data out there and tools out there that they could buy the program themselves the problem is execution so quite quickly, I realized that to deliver, I would have to actually carry the weight for some of these companies and do more of the work, which I was fine with because it was exciting to be involved with the companies and to make an impact and to actually create some results. But over time, if you get more than a couple of customers, it begins to become very difficult to do everybody else's job. At least it became difficult for me. Maybe some other people are much better project managers than perhaps I am. And as a result, I was not able to maximize the benefits. So I had to make a choice, either work with less customers and charge higher fees or find a way to create more scale with the program. Okay, so out of that experience, did an opportunity present itself that kind of gave you the idea of what you're doing now about actually acquiring some of these businesses? Well, I looked at the clients that I was working with and I came to the realization that I was getting a fair fee, I felt, for what I was actually having to do. But the clients, we were actually able to implement the system where we were actually able to execute like to the end customer, not just internal, not just, you know, feel good USPs and stuff internally, where we were actually able to push that stuff out to the clients that you actually can make a fairly significant impact reasonably quick. You know, and even a small percentage impact in different lines of business or different product lines begins to accumulate up into, you know, a 10% increase for the business, 20% increase for the business, whatever. Can you give me an example of one of your clients and just tell the story of how that became apparent to you, like a specific example with one of your HMA clients? Sure, sure. So I'm going to talk about a company that I ended up acquiring because it was one of the better examples. The company was structured very, very weakly in regards to their sales and marketing efforts. What kind of client was this? So this is a technology company, sold uh, software services to the market, been around for quite a while and had a fairly decent customer base overall. What it was relying on was strictly a single salesperson to do so and the database was just a poor conglomeration of Outlook contacts and spreadsheets and those kind of things and wasn't very well defined as to what the service it would be providing looked like. It was just, you know, here's kind of what we can do and hopefully we can work something out. And, you know, a lot of the business is built on relationships and being in the market a long time. So we started looking at, well, what does this company actually provide? What's the value that it provides and what's the measurable impact? And let's understand from our customers what it is that they see as a benefit so that we can articulate a selling proposition that makes sense. You know, what kind of guarantees could be put in place? What kind of community involvement could be put in place? What kind of different touch 
advertising needs to be put in place. So adding a few more pillars to this sole individual salesperson that was just chugging away and making a good living at it, but wasn't really helping the business scale. And this company for years was doing about a million and a half, a million and three quarters sales and business simply on the churn of those relationships. So we said, okay, well, let's fix the website. And we fixed the website and we applied the selling proposition to that website in a way to capture leads. And we start to trickle in a handful of leads every week. Nothing too spectacular that you would go, well, we've changed the world. But, you know, we're getting 10, 15 leads a week, which was nice. Let's put it that. And then we'd start doing some direct mail pieces to very defined customers where we understood who the ideal profile customer was and what they needed to look like. And we could now take some of the USP and some of the testimonials that we'd acquired together, the case studies that we built, and we start sending these. And we start getting one or two leads from that type of avenue perspective. Then we'd put on seminars or webinars or whatnot, and we'd align ourselves or do a joint venture loosely word joint venture. We do a referral agreement with some other company to get access to their customer base. And, you know, we get a handful of other leads from that avenue as well. These are telling this up and over a period of a couple of months, every week we'd be getting, you know, 25, 30 leads of which we might be able to convert two or three, which is, again, not big numbers. We're not talking about transforming the world, but if our average transaction, which we also moved up our average transaction to start with, it was only about $5,000, moved up to about 12 and a half started to make a fairly good impact on the business in a 90-day period. So they were happy. Yes, and the utilization with software, the cost of developing software is a sunk cost. It's an individual cost. So any money that comes in above and beyond covering your cost is profit, basically, you know, in loose terms. There's not that much additional cost that necessarily has to max up into that. So that began to gain some momentum there, and then we looked at ways to increase our revenue even further by adding a small telemarketing team to follow up on the leads and put a bit more sequential work behind the system. We implemented a CRM system, again, very simple. We didn't spend millions of bucks that tracked, you know, the different stages that the leads would go through and make sure that follow-up calls were being done and so on. So again, just a little bit more sophisticated so that the leads would go up from maybe 30 to 35 or 40 a week, but that the conversion ratio, actually, we started dealing with the conversion ratio and seeing if we could move that up closer to 5% or 10%. And that's when it became obvious that there was a big upside potential for this business, that we could move it from being, you know, we're getting closer to becoming just over $2 million business. It's like, well, we could probably move this company into 2 or $3 million territory without significantly more investments if we figure out a way to do a deal with the business owners. Now, at that time, when you started seeing that, you were on your retainer type thing. That's right. Okay, so now take me to the next step. You realize, hey, this HMA system or this marketing stuff really works and can significantly grow the right type of business. And then when did the light come on in your head? I mean, I know you've bought businesses before, so you had a little bit of experience with that. I know, for example, with the carpet cleaning business that we talked about in the last interview and your training business as well. That's right. Well, yeah, I did have a bit of experience. What I hadn't realized, I guess, was I'd been in these companies and I'd fallen into the exact same trap that any business owner falls into where, you know, the cobbler's kids don't have shoes and the guy who sharpens knives walks around with a dull knife, that kind of stuff, right? And I'd fallen into the trap of owning these companies or being in these businesses and really searching for marketing information and stuff like that to apply. But you get so bogged down on the operational aspects of the company and the business that you can't see through it. So, you know, that's when I started saying I got these businesses, let them go, or I got rid of some of them. 
and I said I'm going to be a consultant. I went out and do consulting, but I ran into a different type of problem where with a business you can actually create some scalability, but as a consultant I couldn't create scalability unless I decided to build a consulting business. And I've always been adverse to doing businesses based on time and material or labor effort. So I tried to see if I could put deals together where I could get some upside or whatnot. And I found a lot of resistance and a lot of complications in doing those effectively. And I started really digging deep into that market of how people do these deals where they get upside and, you know, shared revenue. And I think to a large extent, from what I read and researched, and you definitely have more access to information than I would on this. But I didn't find that there was really a good business model there that people could effectively capitalize or use. And most of the stuff that I read when I dig further, probed, or tried to call the companies where the deals were made, a lot of it, I think, was overhyped, you know, the potential that people were getting out of doing these joint venture deals. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's Hard to Find Seminars. When you say doing outside, do you mean approaching businesses cold, looking to just learn about them and see if you can acquire them? No, 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 no. I'm still talking about the concept of going to a company as a consultant and saying, look, if I increase your revenue. Oh, 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 a contingency deal. Yeah, contingency. Okay. Did you ever try a contingency with anyone? Yes, I tried them, and I had mediocre success. Let's put it that way. And then I wanted, because my main goal was to find a way to create leverage in what I was doing. I didn't want to trade dollars for hours, so I wanted to be able to get a significant upside from the work that I was doing. And so I really tried hard for almost a year to really push the contingency side to the point where I'd say, look, my typical monthly retainer now is $10,000. I would pitch knowing that companies would never pay that, but I'd say, look, in exchange for giving you a reduced rate, I want an upside on the future of revenues that are generated and potential. And, you know, I got a few takers, but in the end, I found that it was very hard to manage. It was very hard to convince the customer to go down that route because there was too many unknowns and very few business owners have perhaps the foresight or the willingness to provide that kind of return to somebody when they feel that they're not doing anything to earn it, even though you might have done all the work up front. You know, people quickly forget all the work that you do up front. So you were using the typical Jay Abraham model. If, if I could earn you a dollar, would you pay me a quarter for every dollar I earned? That's right. And you weren't asking for any skin in the game. You were going to do all the work with their promise of paying you a percentage or a contingency. That's right. So there was nothing invested on their end? There was. What I do is I take this monthly fee that I said I would be charging, that was 10000 so you're going to pay me $2,000 or $3,000, but the balance is going to be made up on contingency. Okay, so they would pay a little something. That's right. Did you generate some sales where you had problems getting paid? That was part of it. The accounting part was difficult, and the attribution of revenue is really hard for a lot of companies, and I would have needed to probably be much better at controlling the direct mail and the marketing pieces, but it's very hard to determine where revenue is coming from, particularly when you're dealing with companies that have had good databases. They just may not have maximized those databases. So you put ads out, and you might put direct mail pieces out, but it's very easy for the customer to never remember where anything came from, but they're coming back, and yes, they're coming back, but the client that's paying me for the services is not going to readily accept that they're necessarily coming from me when it's going to cost them 20% of that. So I found it much more complicated to do, and I still found that even if I did that, that unless you really, really manage it every day, you're there all the time, you're working on it all the time, you couldn't really walk away from the opportunity and let it generate cash for you while you went off and did something else, which is kind of my goal. 
So I was like, well, there has to be a slightly better way. And in that process, I started doing some just research and understanding trends in the market and see what's happening and what's going on. And a couple of things started coming together for me in the sense that we've got this boomer generation that have all, not have all, but a good number of them have started businesses and they're getting to that point where they want to divest of those companies. So you were doing research. So the baby boomers, there's a big glut of boomers who you found through research who are getting at the age where they may want to divest their businesses? That's right. There's only a few options that they have to divest their company. I mean, they can sell it. They can pass it on to family. They can wind it down, really, is the options they have. And, you know, if you look at it from a trajectory of, you know, how many kids are following behind them, a lot of the kids of the boomer generation aren't necessarily interested or willing or even available to take on the business. And as the years have progressed, particularly from beginning in 2008 now into 2009, and I'll talk about the second trend, you know, more and more of these companies are getting ready to sell, and it's becoming harder and harder to find buyers for these companies simply because there's just a limited amount of people who are willing to buy in those industries. Most of these companies are million to five million in revenue. They're not huge businesses, and they're fairly localized, so they're not necessarily appealing to perhaps a bigger industry or bigger market that needs big presence. You know, they have to buy a whole bunch of them. So they're kind of caught in a vortex of trends and it's been aggravated by the financial market challenge. So they're looking to retire. They're looking to get some cash out of their business. A lot of them don't have family they can rid it to because there's so many other companies getting out to market for sale. There's a lot of competition for the market for cash for the sale of their business. And now with the tightening financial markets, people are less willing to take the risk on these companies. So, you know, all these things started all coming together and it became obvious that a lot of people needed to find a way to make an exit out of their company effectively without losing their shirt or without having to wind it down and then try to figure out another way to sustain the retirement. And most of these people have been pretty good about saving and about generating assets and financial planning and so on. But they're hoping to get this one last chunk of change, you know, half a million bucks, a million bucks, maybe two out of the company so that it'll just supplement their final retirement plan. And that has quickly disappeared along with some of the cash that they thought they would get from their houses and stuff like that as well. So I saw that trend and I didn't see that just myself. You know, you can read about it on the news and I talked to some fairly intelligent people in the market and began to understand that. So I started to put my note out that I was looking for companies to acquire through a buyout program. And my buyout program was basically going to be buying them out using the HMA system as the revenue tool to get it. And in some instances, and I'll get into a bit more detail in a minute, but in some instances it made sense to just put cash down. You know, I have access to resources that allow me to do that and just buy the company. But in a lot of instances, we've been able to buy into businesses and take over a big portion of the business in a relatively short period of time in exchange for the results. So instead of being contingency-based, we did a profit base, and that revenue, as it came back in, would go towards equity into the company based on a fixed arrangement that was done previous to the acquisition, that kind of thing. So it provided these people who are looking to sell their companies an opportunity to sell their business, but also maintain control and mitigate their risk in the event that it doesn't go through perfectly. And at the same time, if it does work, you know, they've got some confidence, which is quite important for a lot of them, that the business continues to go. It's still their baby. They don't want to see it decimated. You know, they want to see it develop and whatnot. So it kind of provides a comfort level that's slightly different than somebody who might be just coming in to strip the company for a few particular assets that they may have had. Right.
Right, right. No, that's brilliant. That's excellent. How many have you done thus far? We've done three. We're on our third one, and we're close to looking at finalizing a fourth one in January that we think we'll finalize. And my plan is now we're getting a little better at this, and I'll kind of talk about the tools that we've been using to get there. Let me ask you this. What criteria are you looking for specifically? And maybe this may be obvious today to make consultants. You want a business with hidden marketing assets, but are you going after a certain sector maybe that you're more comfortable with? Are you going after the technology sector? Or what are you looking for specifically? If so, anyone listening, if they were doing some bird dogging for you and they had some ideas, what are you looking for? Well, I thought I was going to be much pickier about the companies. You know, you know I tend to like businesses that are a bit more lack of a better term, sophisticated, you know, in the sense IT, financial services, those kind of things. But I quickly realized that there's lots of benefits in pursuing markets that aren't sophisticated. So my criteria is a bit more general than I thought it would be. But typically, I'm looking for business owners who are in that boomer type stage of their life or they're in that category simply because structuring a deal becomes a lot easier and their interest and desire to sell is much greater than somebody just out of the blue. They should have been in business for a number of years. I'm typically looking at companies that have been in business 10 years or more simply because that gives them enough base of experience, track record. There's enough data going on in the company that you can actually squeeze some of the benefits like the HMA stuff out of it instead of it just being a new company. And typically with very poor systems internally, a lot of these companies were reasonably operationally driven, but they haven't leveraged new technologies. They haven't leveraged other things. So there's an advantage there to maximize and capitalize on that. On the flip side, many of them have not been marketing savvy. They've grown out of a specific specialist expertise. Somebody was an engineer. Somebody was in a certain industry that they were capable of doing stuff with. So, you know, they just learned how to do their job very well, and they developed a reputation. They didn't need to market all that much, and they didn't necessarily become very good at operational effectiveness with it. And so those are kind of the big criteria. And then in between, I find that to do a deal effectively, company should be at about one and a half million dollars to five million. But over five million dollars, it's more complicated. You're talking about a lot more investment in being able to fix and change some of these things. They're under a million and a half, typically not worth the effort at scaling the company. They may not have gotten any scale or some core processes may not still be there, which will come to bite you later on. And I've got three companies now, but we've tried five and two early on didn't work out because we didn't pay attention to some of these details. Yeah, so that's kind of the process, and I've been mainly focusing when we take the company on, of course, the leadership-type aspect of it, but I've also assembled a small group of people that, you know, one has very strong financial expertise, I'll use a very, very good lawyer, and then we've got a very, very good operator who works with the company to implement these things so that we can actually implement the HMA system and we can implement some of the CRM or other financial control pieces very well without running the same risk that a typical business owner runs. So trying not to be the day-to-day business owners, we're trying to be the enablers so these companies can take on these tools. So basically consultants to ourselves is in the end what I'm trying to be so that we can reap the benefits of the upside but not get bogged down in being a day-to-day runner of the company. We'll get into the same mistakes that I've made in the past as a business owner. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you, have you studied some of the Art Hamill stuff in there in the HMA system? No, I have not. You gotta listen to this stuff. You know, in the HMA University, I've got a whole product with a guy named Art Hamill, who's a business buying expert. This is a whole course. I've got probably 15 hours of audio interviews with this guy. He's bought over 200 businesses, most of them over a million dollars. He was the dean of business buying. He put over 500,000 people through his seminars back in the 80s. 
It was the number one selling product on the Home Shopping Network, and he may be close to 80, but I've been interviewing him since 2004. In this whole system, all my interviews with him, I mean, you're on the right track. What he was doing, he was buying businesses at first, but then he wanted to get into some businesses down in Mexico. And when he started, first he was doing the traditional bank financing, leveraging assets, leveraging receivables, all that stuff. But then he started using investors to get into the businesses, and he was real active in the real estate exchange groups and he was using real estate to secure the business and get big lines of credit to get into the businesses but there's definitely some techniques and some stuff that you'll want to hear in these interviews that will give you more options too. I'll direct you to it. Yeah, it's right in that HMA University. You'll see the business buying stuff. But, yeah, you definitely want to get into some of that stuff. All right, let me ask you this question, and this is going great. This is fascinating. Let's say someone hears that you got your feelers out, and I fit those criteria, and I contact you, and I say, yeah, I'm the owner of X, Y, and Z, and you've got some kind of offer about purchasing the business. How does it work? Tell me your system from the time someone contacts you, whether it's by email or phone. What are the steps that you do? with that person from the time the phone call comes in? Well, the first important piece is to be really familiar with the HMA system as a starting point and, of course, having some financial acumen to really go and evaluate what the business is. So, you know, doing that assessment, doing that initial consultation that, you know, a lot of the consultants are doing already, instead of looking at it, doing it from a perspective to make a marketing audit for the customer, basically I'm using that to create a buying audit. What's the potential of buying in this company based on the potential return we could get if we implemented some of these things? So, I mean, if you walk into a company and they've got a USP and they've got a database and they're marketing to it on a weekly basis, they've got community involvement, you know, and they're doing direct mail, even if they're doing it poorly, it's a good chance that you're not going to be able to make a significant enough impact in a short period of time to be able to get some financial leverage to buy into the company, right? But if they're not doing any of that stuff, then you have to start making some assumptions and you start doing some research to say, well, if we did this to their base, what would the impact be and how do we test it? You know, can we go in and do a small test? Can we do part of our diligence, a couple of things? So it's that diligence process up front which involves this aspect of, you know, the marketing side of the business. And then the other side is the aspect of the financial and operations side of the business. And, of course, also understanding what kind of resources they actually have. You know, I mean, in some cases, the owner of the business is the guru, the expert, and there's nobody else that has that knowledge internally of how to do certain things. And you buy this company, well, how is that going to be transferred? Is it possible to transfer that knowledge? Who can it be transferred to? Can it be documented? Can it be put into an information library? Whatever, and if not, then it's too risky to do. So the checklist keeps improving every time we talk to somebody else. We go, we should have really ask this question or this came up that we've never asked before and we should ask it and we've been slowly building a better guideline but really for me the basis of it is is the company good at doing what they do do they have a good reputation and are they under marketed and if we've got those pieces in place then we'll go deeper into the financial aspects and some of the operational aspects because there's lots of people who have those capabilities of helping improve those parts but there's limited people who have the ability to look at the marketing side effectively and it's amazing just how much money and you know we've looked at one company that hopefully we'll be able to do a deal with this year. They've, over the past number of years, spent hundreds of thousands on marketing consultants who've had grandiose programs or plans or ad agencies to get very, very little in return. So we know that these companies are struggling to find that, and that's something we can give them fairly effectively, fairly quickly, and simply, like, this is not rocket science programs that we can apply in the sense to the company. So to 
typically the first phase and slightly long-winded answer there for you. No, that's good. And, you know, there's some parallels. It's interesting, like in the business world, when the business world or the bank world evaluates a business, they're not really taking the marketing into account whatsoever. They're evaluating the business and giving that business a value based on past sales, inventory, accounts receivable, all hard assets, nothing intangible. And then you come in, and it's just a totally different angle with so much power, much more so than the hard assets, if those hidden assets are there. So that's exciting. For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Yeah, and I agree. When I first looked at the program a few years back, my biggest concern was that it seemed too simple. Right. I mean, I looked at Jay Abraham's stuff and I looked at other people's stuff and I'd spent money on marketing, different types of tools. And, you know, you get this verbose, complex, difficult stuff and you go, well, it must work because it's so freaking hard to follow. It must be amazingly genius. But the reality of the matter is that that's the downfall of most of these other programs is that they're so difficult that you don't really understand what it means to implement or you have to wade through way too much rhetoric to get down to the point of what's actually involved. So, you know, with the HMA system, you know, at first I was skeptical, but at the price point, I was like, well, it's worth it. What am I going to risk with this? But, you know, it's paint my numbers. I got to do this, do that, do this, and follow the steps, and it makes it stupid simple, which is, in the end, the only things that work in business, especially in our types of economies. And I think as a result of that, you can go into a company and look at stupid, simple, basic baseline principles that matter, that make a difference, that need to be done to be successful. And you can say, are they doing this, yes or no? And if you don't get a clear yes or no answer, then, you know, you need to dig a little further. But it's very rare that you go and you go, you know, are you doing this? Do you have a customer database? Do you have community involvement? Do you have any type of advertising going on? Does your advertising follow any of these guidelines? You know, you can check it pretty quickly. You can their website, you can look at their brochures, you can look at those things. And on a scale of 30 things that they've been doing, they're doing two. Well, we've got 28 potential things to improve. You know, what kind of return could that create? A bit of judgment, a bit of experience, perhaps, which you get by first going out and doing some consulting work, for sure. Sorry to interrupt, but where are you going to establish a price to buy the business? At what point, and how do you come up with, or how do you negotiate that price of what you're willing to pay before you set up your buyout performance plan? That industry is actually fairly mature, and this, to a certain extent, also depends on beginning to understand what the business owner wants or is looking for. You know, I think business owners have certain numbers in their minds that they think the business is worth, and, you know, that's what they're hoping to get or are looking for. But truth be told, there's usually a reason why they want to use the money to buy a house in a certain location. They want to do something else or whatever. They're looking for a specific amount of cash flow to get a return from in exchange for the business. You know, they're hoping to do a couple of things. So, you know, they're saying, if I sell my business for a million bucks and I'm going to take $5,000 of that every month, as part of my retirement plan. You know, there's lots of ways in which people are looking at their business in terms of the retirement vehicle. So, Important lesson is you got to ask them, what do they really want? Yeah, exactly, and that's exactly it. So we found out from one business owner that his goal was to move to some part of Latin America and he needed X amount of dollars a month to live, and that was his plan. You know, for others, it's a certain lump sum to buy a particular thing or to put in a particular avenue that they're hoping to acquire or achieve. 
for others, it's more about making sure the business sustains. You know, they've made some money and they want the business to go and they want to keep involved. They don't want to necessarily retire, but they don't want to run the business day to day anymore. They're exhausted from that and they want some innovation to come in and somebody to put some of that behind it. So we haven't found specific particular reasons. Now, there are guidelines. There are very good books out there that explain, you know, how to evaluate a business. And we've developed my banker, a good relationship with him to help guide me and provide us access to other resources and people who understand this very, very well, which is part of the importance of building a team for this. But what we've learned with a lot of businesses and a lot of the ones we're talking to now, they realize that the opportunity of getting a lump sum out of the company is going to be very, very hard in the near term. So if we can make it appealing to them to transition from the business and to continue to get some cash flow out of the company, and at the same time for us to still continue to get the benefit of their expertise and wisdom without them necessarily having to carry the burden of the day-to-day for the next five years, but maybe just for a year and then be able to transition from there, that it's quite appealing to a few of them to look at it from that perspective. Of course, some that they just want cash and there's no creative way to look at their business and that's okay. There's millions of companies out there that need to be sold in the next couple of years. That's true. And they're never going to get it with a business broker. A business broker is always going to have the owner finance a business. That's right. All right, so tell me more about how once you meet with this business owner, you kind of take them through an analysis of where they're at and where their potential is. You're doing their due diligence to see if it's a fit. And let's say something looks good, you've maybe done a little bit of testing and you think you can scale this thing and make some money out of it. Then what do you say to the business owner and how do you structure your agreement? What have you found is working for you? Okay, so the delicate part. I guess or one of the more delicate parts of that process is moving to the conversation of saying, you know what, we'd like to basically buy your business and we'd like to do this in a way that's perhaps not super traditional in regards to the way that it might have been sold or looked at. And that's, you know, really where a lot of psychology and sales skills and sales training, and there's certainly been some fantastic sales training on the site over the past year that I think has been very good where you're basically looking to sell the concept to the business owner in the sense that we look at the company's current revenues and their current way of operating and we say, look, we like your business and we think that there's an opportunity for this business to be very successful. We're looking to acquire companies and that's what we do as a business and we feel that there is a significant amount of revenue sitting in the company that is not being maximized or leveraged or utilized or whatever, both from an operational standpoint and from a marketing standpoint. And the agreement we'd like to put in place is that we would like to generate additional revenue based on these targets and these margins that your business is currently operating at. And money in excess of that is contributed to the acquisition of this business. Now, we feel this business is worth or is valued at, you know, these particular numbers. And we know that this is what you're looking to get from the business and, and or what you're trying to do with the money from the business. So here's a couple of options. And this has been one of the more important pieces is to provide the customer, in this case, to sell you a number of options of which we can structure an agreement with. So, you know, cash flow for their living expenses, amount of buyout at a certain period of time and date in the future, you know, how the calculation of revenue today goes calculated to the business at that point or within that window, the valuation of the company. We might have variables for valuations in the future, you know, upsize or whatever for the business owner if based on some things that we need them to help do, but we don't want to create a scenario where we have an unknown buying price for the company in the future because the revenue all of a sudden shot up and now their profits are twice what they were before or something like that, right? Right, right. Now, you want to confirm what the buying price is going to be before you do anything. That's right. Okay. At that point, we agree.
agree on the value. We agree on what the assets are in the business. We draft a letter of intent at that point in relation to the acquisition of the company, and we put together basically an addendum that describes the working model and how the contribution applies towards the actual business and what out clauses exist for both parties. So after a couple of months, we realize that it's not a good fit for us or they realize it's not a good fit for them. What are the out clauses? And some of those out clauses include that if revenues do go up and so on, that they're going to pay a fee for it and what that fee looks like. And if it's not working for us, for whatever reason, you know, how we can get out with the least amount of risk as well. Okay. Talk to me about your team. You've got an attorney and you've got a banker or someone who understands, you know, I guess valuations. How did you structure the team and is there something in it for them if one of these deals pays out? How do you work that out? Yeah, and that's part of it. So the financial expert or financial guru and, you know, a legal expert, those are outsiders, let's call it that. And they stand to gain from the acquisition of the business to become basically the advisors or the de facto service providers for the company. So we have a legal company that we deal with. We research them. They're by far the most expensive ones in their area of expertise, but we found that it saves us a huge amount of time, and they have access to significant amounts of other resources and even leads for us. So we found that it's worth paying the hourly rate, but on the flip side, we're able to mitigate and get them to give us some flexibility in the process by them understanding and knowing that once we have acquired a company, that they become the legal firm of choice for our particular firm. And, you know, we've proven that when we did the first one, it was a little harder, you know, there was a little more hesitance from them, and we challenged them a lot on their fees, and we'd make them give us fixed rates, and, you know, I'd argue with them a ton about what a value I'm getting, but over time, they've been much more amenable to helping in the diligence part without charging exorbitant rates and being much more calm about the service they're providing, if you put it that way, in exchange to know that, you know, once the business is going, that they do have a number of benefits in dealing with the company and that they are going to be doing the closing of the company sale and those kind of things, which begins to add up for them over a couple of businesses. Let me ask you, does it help to have that team in place when you're negotiating and when you're talking with that potential seller? Oh, for sure. And I think over the years I've made the mistake of not having a team, you know, trying to be too much of a solo person, a solo player, and going back to my early stages of even doing the HMA thing, or even in other businesses, trying to be a lone ranger doesn't work anymore. It's too hard to have the breadth and depth. doesn't mean you can't be in control. doesn't mean you can't manage the whole thing from start to end, but you need to have an advisory group. You need to have a mastermind or some call it or whatever. And in the end, I've realized that you get what you pay for. If it's free, you're usually getting that. And if you get top-end advice, you usually get what you pay for. So, you know, I interviewed a lot of people. I made sure that there was the right chemistry in regards to the legal team in particular because there's lots of options out there. And I had to be somebody that fit my style, somebody complimented areas that I'm not as strong in, and also had subject matter expertise that was very, very good. So I did invest a good three months before I landed on someone that I felt was the type of person that I could work with and that I knew would make judgment calls that aligned with my values and those kind of things. Okay, that's great. That's important. And for the financial piece as well, you know, an accountant also is not on staff, let's call it, for me, it's a company that I use for accounting purposes. I've used them for years, but at the same time, they have the vested interest that once the business gets going, that the accounting work gets passed to them, and they understand the kind of things that are important to me. They understand my tolerance for risk and those kind of things, and 
at the same time, these people are not the ones that are making the decisions. I don't let the decision become a legal decision or a financial dollars and cents decision. In those cases, I mean, you have to make the decision yourself. And we have a relationship where they understand that I'm not going to let them get in the way of an opportunity just because of, you know, a clause here or a number here or there, right? I'm, in the end, we have to make those decisions. But these are people that I believe are very good in their field and very strong at being willing to say, you know what, I disagree with that point or I think that, you know, your estimates are out of whack. You know, I'll come back with marketing numbers sometimes and I'll go, oh, hang on a second. You're going to get this kind of return. You're going to have to invest this much extra money. Where are you going to get that money from? Are you going to put more money in, you know, to make it happen? So very, very good people to do with. And again, it's very important to have that, to find that group of people. Way too often I try to do it. And then the third person is an operations person that I hired. This is somebody that I've seen in the market before, and I bit the bullet to hire someone of this caliber who really, really knows how to run a business and knows how to implement stuff. They're not necessarily marketers, and they're not necessarily accountants. They're not necessarily, you know, deep subject matter experts, but they're very good managers, and this person in particular is a very good manager. So when we acquire, he basically is the eyes and ears and can prop up the information, understands what needs to get done to get implemented, can work with the team there to implement the different aspects of the business very, very effectively because that's what's going to make a difference so that I can then take my expertise, which is the sales and marketing piece, and focus in that company on the sales and marketing piece instead of trying to figure out how to run everything and learn every aspect of the business and so on. And then, you know, over a short period of time, and our goal is always 90 days, over a period of 90 days to be able to make a significant enough impact where we can then be able to start taking more day-to-day control of that company and then we can start applying more resources and more people and, you know, switching out things that need to be switched out, whatever, over that period of time. But he does the learning and the knowledge transfer the business and of understanding it. And I spend my time doing the revenue side and implementing the different marketing tools and sales tools so that we get accelerated and we don't just sit there waiting for things to happen. Is your manager on site? Your businesses, like the three you have going now, are they local or are they spread out? Spread out. We actually move for three months. You and the manager will move for three months? That's right. Yeah, you have to be there. Okay, that's exciting. We found that one of the companies required somebody else who has similar skills to his that can become another person who can do this particular role. And my job is to find someone to do the consulting marketing side and go and actually implement and just get these things off the ground. Because once the business is running, a lot of these companies have good people, they have the right tools, they just need like a jet taking off, they need some propulsion up front just to get them going. Once they're going, they can maintain them. They've done a good job of doing it for 10 years, you know. Mistakes that I've made in the past of my companies is I think that I know how to do everything a lot better than who was there before. And the truth is you really don't. They've done it successfully for a long time. The key is can you give them a bit of momentum and a bit of an uplift so that their plateau isn't 10,000 feet, it's 100,000 feet. So instead of it being a million dollars, your plateau is $2 million or $3 million. So if we can get those things rolling, you know, they can maintain it very, very well, but it's a different type of person and a different type of expertise, perhaps. And, you know, this is where the value comes from, the marketing tools, is to bring it up a few levels so that then they can maintain it at a new level there and, of course, at a higher profitability for everybody. Okay, so I want you to talk about the big picture in this, okay, of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I hope I'm on the right track. I'm thinking when you compare this to working with 12 clients at a time, growing their businesses, getting paid on either retainer or project work, compared to now you're working with three businesses using the HMA system to grow them, tell me about the potential and what is the ultimate goal. Is it to sell out for big money? Well, 
Not really yet. I think I think we got a ways to go to get there. As much as I'd like to say that's the big end goal, right now it's really about maximizing profit in the businesses. The market will change over time, and I think if we're really smart, you know, over a period of time we might have a dozen, fifty, I don't know, companies where the scale between them, we might be able to share some resources, we might be able to get some best practices, some buying power, whatever. It might be a potential from that perspective. But truly, you know, just from a strictly self perspective, if I'm a marketing consultant, I can go and I can get a fee for $3,000 from this company and maybe a contingency of another two grand, let's say, so five grand. So maybe I'm getting 60 grand from a particular company. The same business, though, with today is producing maybe 200 or $300,000 in profits. And if through the changes and through the marketing updates we do a good job, it could produce 400 or $500,000 in profit. I now have access not to 60000 but I have access to half a million dollars in profits. Or even if I just took the upside of that, another $200,000 in profit that I could reinvest in the company I can pull out and use for myself or whatever. So now if I have a handful of companies with that, it makes a significant difference to the kind of things that you can do. You can use that money to buy other companies. You can leverage it in different ways from that standpoint. And the biggest value that the HMA system provides is it provides access to cash. In the end, you help revenue come in the door, and as long as the company is not screwing it up by being really poor at delivering, you're going to increase your cash flow and relatively quickly, and right now, cash is king, and that's where I think the big benefit is. So if I'm going to be a consultant, you know, and I think I'm fairly competitive as a salesperson, but I know that my access to potential clients is going to be a lot harder than it would have been before. People, they're retrenching, and they're cutting their budgets for training, and they're cutting their budgets for marketing, and they're cutting their budgets in all the wrong places, because that's what companies do when the economy gets rough. But if I'm the guy on the other side, though, and I get to make these choices, I get to invest my energy and time in the marketing and then training my staff and reap the benefits that come from it without having to wait for the market to begin to get exciting again. Let's say you've got one of your companies and you've got an agreement and the agreement's in place. You're going to try and grow revenues without spending more money on advertising. But in some cases, have you had to put a lot of money into the company? And if you did, how do you structure that? Who puts the money in during this trial phase? you or the owner or both? That's a very good question. There is a requirement to invest more. In a lot of cases, you can't just go in and implement something. You know, if a website needs to get done, somebody has to do it, and they may not have the resources to do it. So this is where it becomes really important to, one, be creative and, to be very intelligent. So one of the things that we look at is, well, what resources are really not performing well in that some of these businesses, they've been hanging on to resources or people that just haven't been producing and aren't producing, and there's a low willingness to get rid of them because it's just complacency or whatever, you know, and now it's getting a little different where companies are making these choices because they know they have to make them and they can't wait around, but when the going was good, they'd say, well, you know, I like Johnny or Joe or whatever, and they've been good people for a long time, so we'll keep them around. So sometimes we're able to free up cash by just doing that thing. You know, you've got three employees here who you're paying 50 grand each, and they're not doing anything for you. I don't know why, and you challenge the business owner a bit, and you usually get an answer that says, yeah, you know, I've been thinking of getting rid of them for a while, but, you know, I just haven't got around to it kind of thing, and that's been able to free up. But in other cases, you know, there has been a need to put in a few thousand dollars, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars sometimes to get some marketing done, and it's attributed as part of the investment into the business, and in the event that the company doesn't fly or whatnot, that the deal doesn't go through, that there's some attribution to recovering those expenses back. But on the flip side, I think one of the really important things has been to just be brave at asking for deals. Like, 
you can get a website done for 500 bucks now, whereas before it was 5,000 bucks. You can get a CRM system. You know, a lot of people are paying for really expensive monthly CRM fees, whatever. You can get some really good CRM for $5, $15 a month, $2 a month per employee, some of these things. So being very cost-conscious, I've realized even around the marketing is critical, 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 so that you become smarter at doing those things and leveraging. And that comes with a bit of experience, and it comes with just being willing to ask a lot of times. So we have to invest, but sometimes we invest because we don't know how to find a better way to do it, and that's, I think, a key trait that we've needed to learn this year. But all of these things, these situations that could come out, your attorney has covered all that, like in your contract or in your agreement. Everything's been taken into consideration. That's exactly it, and that's one of the real values by dealing with our attorney has been that he's walked us through these scenarios, right? Lots of things that we haven't thought about in the past. You know, things like, what if the company has a lien on it? Have you thought about that? What if they have another silent shareholder somewhere? How are you going to deal with them if they don't want to sell in a period of time? You know, what happens if you need to put money in to make this business work? What happens if the business owner decides that he doesn't want to approve decisions that are being made, right? How do you deal with those? So, you know, we go through a whole bunch of these things. And the real key is that we structure the agreement in a way that has some protection, but it's fairly light in the sense that we can get started. We can go fairly quickly go to market, go get things done, and begin to test each other out and know within that short period of time whether we're going to have a good working relationship or not. And in some cases, there's good intentions, but there's just not an ability to work together. In other cases, you realize that there's a much greater opportunity to move this faster than you thought when you got started. But our agreement allows us to fairly quickly, once we have the letter of understanding in place and the intents in place and some guidelines, to begin to go get some things done, like any consultant would do, and from there begin to course correct between the two organizations, basically. Uh, a couple of things. One is I've been marketing the Orrin Hamill system for a long time, the HMA system, and I've always said the two together, two individually are both very powerful concepts, buying a business using investors' money, and then the HMA marketing consulting system, very powerful individually, but together they're super powerful, and that's exactly what you're doing. Even though you haven't really looked at the Art Hamill stuff, you're basically doing that exact thing, and the HMA system becomes a bank. It allows you to get into ownership of a business by bartering consulting. Yeah, I'm going to study this Star Hamill stuff like a maniac for the next couple of days, I guarantee you that. But really, I mean, cash flow is the number one issue for a lot of these companies. In fact, one of the companies that we're looking at right now, the issue is cash flow, that it kind of goes a little bit outside that the mold for the business owner really doesn't need to retire tomorrow kind of thing. He could hang on for 10 more years and he'd be fine, although he had thought about it. But truly, he's run into a cash flow problem. And this struck me on the call that you did last week where someone was saying, you know, should we talk to companies who are thinking of winding down their operations? The only reason companies wind down their operations is because they're running out of cash. They just don't have enough cash to meet payroll, to meet whatever kind of things, right? So sometimes it becomes a very, very good opportunity to pick up the customer list, to pick up assets, to pick up the business, even if, you know, you've got enough window to be able to make some improvements in regards to cash flow for the company. And cash flow comes only by doing a deal where people pay you. And you could pick up the phone and you could try to sell a couple of customers, but there's not enough scale in that. But with a marketing system behind it, and if we can implement things in a short period of time, you can get cash in the door. 
And really, that's what's killing companies today is they don't have cash. And without the cash to meet their demands, they have to close their doors. But a marketing system improves cash flow. Right. Did you ever hear the interview? I interviewed a guy out of the U.K. who's an expert at working with businesses and getting the business up to a point, pricing it for the highest dollar amount sale. And he was working with a couple partners, and they were buying nursing homes, small nursing home units all through the U.K., and then they bought about 10 of them. They ended up selling it for millions and millions of dollars. But that'd be another interview. There's a lot of great information like that. He's positioned himself as the expert for positioning your business for the highest selling price. My nature would not like him. You wouldn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I want it for the cheapest possible one. Just joking with you. I'd love to hear that recording as well. Okay, good. So that's the picture. So if people are coming across businesses where they're looking to get out of the company where there's a cash flow issue, then I'd get them to think twice about taking another look at that company and get in touch with you to access me to look at some of these companies and see if there's a potential there. I mean, in the end, I'd rather own part of a business and be able to direct its future than simply get a fee from it from my perspective. You know, there are risks involved with it. I mean, if a company's profits go down and if you're having troubles with it, you're on the line for it. There are risks, but I think on the flip side, the upside and the reward for the amount of work that you do is much more evident. And really, I think there's a massive asset with the program to be able to extract those values from those companies for personal benefit instead of just, you know, a fee. No, that's great. I love what you're doing. That's excellent. I appreciate you letting me interview you on that. On your three companies, have you moved out on location for all three, three months at a time? You know, if you want 15 or 20 of these, are you going to be able to scale it where you don't have to move out? Well, I think that's my next phase is to develop people who can do that. I mean, I'll always go out for a while. I think to be successful in business, you have to be hands-on today. You can't ignore it. You can't just go and buy something and hope that it moves. But my goal is to develop more operational and more marketing people to be specific to go and do this particular activity with the businesses that we're looking to acquire because I think in the end, those first few months are the critical few months. And then over time, it may make sense to continue to get consulting, continue to get advisory services. But these companies need just a bit of a push. My big investment now is to develop an internal team, let's call it that, to do this particular work with these businesses one to go in and cut costs and one to go in and improve sales. That's the end of my interview with Chris. If you know of any business owner or if you have a potential business that is looking to take advantage of this unique buyout option, please contact me at Michael at MichaelSenoff.com or call 858 274 I hope you found this interview interesting. Thanks for listening. For more interviews like this, go to hardtofindseminars.com.